But for me, I just kept getting burnt out, kept getting really tired and go, oh, what? how am I meant to keep doing this forever? <laughs> and around that time, I re-explored permaculture when actually I can adopt this as my activist framework. I think it will nourish me and nourish others in the process. Activism is for everybody. You just have to find what fits you and your skill set, your personality, your, your passion. Find that and then you can keep going forever. version of us and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer and you're listening to The Remakers. What does it mean to live a good life in the face of the climate emergency? Our next guest, Hannah Maloney, has thought about this question. Hannah is a permaculture designer. She is an educator with a company she started with her husband in Hobart called Good Life Permaculture. She's a very popular guest presenter on Gardening Australia, and she's the best-selling author of a new book called The Good Life, How to Grow a Better World. So many of you are already going to know Hannah. Um, She has literally tens of thousands of followers on social media, and you can tell why. She is authentic and joyful and relatable in a way that just is a total delight. Um, A bit about her background. So she really grew up immersed in kind of soil and social justice. She had parents who grew their own suburban family gardens and nurseries, extended family um, around doing the same thing in the West End of Brisbane. And her parents took social justice and community really seriously. And so um, she kind of was exposed to a lot and grew up with a lot of curiosity and empathy and real desire to sort of make a difference. She's the youngest of five kids, and um, she talks about in her book this feeling that she would get over and over again, this deep, dull thud in her body that would rip through her heart if they dished out conventional career advice at high school about how to be successful, or if she saw white policemen um, harassing the local First Nations people, or when she attended leadership programs that advised them to dress to impress and fake it till you make it, or when she learned more about the climate emergency or saw the logging of the last patch of inner city bushland near her home. And so she had this burning question of how the heck are are any of us supposed to live a good life while stuck in a system that perpetuates so much human and environmental tragedy? And really, when she discovered permaculture and realized that it was more than just a way of organic gardening, but that it was a whole design framework, she went, aha, this is it. And it's been her sort of path forward as an activist. It's something that she's actually applied to kind of the design of her life. So her beautiful book and our conversation is about all of this. You will hear me gush shamelessly about her book um, because it is so accessible and inviting and yet so radical actually in what it is inviting us to do and so incredibly joyful. So um, if you are not into gardening, if you do not own your own home on a large block, 
don't worry, like this conversation is still most definitely for you. And without any further ado, here is Hannah Maloney. And here we are. I'm sitting opposite the wonderful Hannah Maloney. Hannah, thank you so much for being here. It's such a treat to be able to see your face. Thanks for having me. And um, look, I am so in love with um, your book and with what you are doing. And we have given the audience a little bit of an introduction. But would you just mind introducing yourself for anyone who doesn't already know you? And maybe just giving us a little bit of an overview of kind of how you came to be doing this work, just an introduction into a little bit of your story, maybe what some of the forces that might have had an influence on you growing up, just to kind of help people set the stage here. Yeah, sure. So I'm Hannah. I live in Luchuwita, Tasmania, in Nipaluna, Hobart, Amuanina country. And I originally come from Minjin in Brisbane, where I grew up in West End, Kurilpa on a herb nursery that my dad ran um, and my mum was worked with First Nations groups on land title claims with the Native Title Tribunal. And so I had a really, um, to us, very normal upbringing at the time but very unique, I understand, in hindsight where we were just very much surrounded by social environmental justice conversations, lots of politics, lots of, you know, uh, I guess challenging the status quo without realising it um, through my mum and dad. And that made a huge impression on me. And West End, the community I grew up in, is beautifully diverse um, and quite alternative at that time. So it's, I, I try to emphasise that people, this is like before the internet. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so as a young teenager, um, you know, you, all the, the way to learn about things that I was interested in around social environmental justice was through my peers and my community. Uh, the mainstream media, even back then, you could, it was very clearly obvious that they weren't telling the whole story. Like, where's the rest of the story? And um, so I'm very much influenced by the community of people around me in my family, but also um, just in the media area around us, which was very much uh, running beautiful radical campaigns around Free Timor Leste or um, centered around First Nations social justice rights. And so these things were in my face. And when I was 18, I graduated from high school and skipped out on university and instead travelled Australia extensively for three years, living in different areas as I went, um, like so specifically to learn about the issues because, as I said, there's no internet, so you just had to kind of go and see them and, and talk to the people. <laughs> there was lots of um, forest blockading, lots of gatherings of social sustainability issues. Um, you know, I went to Woomera Detention Centre, which was... Uh, like the, I think it was the first attention centre in Australia. Um, uh, horrifying conditions for you know innocent people seeking refuge, um, and just got to really expose myself to some of the great injustices of our of our country and our world, and and it very much affirmed a lot of the things that I'd grown up, the politics I'd grown up around, and I was like, okay, this all feels very very bad. <laughs> How are we meant to live a life? Um, that counters this and of course amongst that I learned about the climate emergency how are we meant to live a life that counters this um, meaningfully without um, becoming a sad mess um, while we can still have love and joy in our lives because otherwise why are we here if we can't experience that love and joy um, I have so much privilege in my life where I've been able to have the luxury of thinking about these things where I don't have to 
worry about my personal safety. Um, I'm educated these days. I have a secure home and, and a secure livelihood. I've got so much privilege in my life. And to me, that comes with responsibilities. Like, well, how are you going to use that? You know, how are you going to um, use it so to benefit other people, not just yourself? So that's why that really drives me in my work. Yeah. And so you talk about um, um, West End in the 80s and 90s. I had what you would call a bloody good childhood. But as I grew up, my eyes and my mind started looking beyond my idyllic childhood. In my teenage years, I felt like my whole spirit was thrashing around, desperately looking and feeling for what was right in the world. And it wasn't just my hormones wreaking havoc, although they were strongly present. It was the one burning question that physically hurt me. Why does so much in our world feel so wrong? Mm. Yeah. It's a feeling that I think a lot of us push down and you somehow didn't. Like you actually made that feeling guide your life. Yeah. And look, and um it like it makes it's made me physically sick in the past, that feeling. So I think I don't I can only speak from my own experience, but it's something that I haven't been able to ignore because it just feels so bad. Um it's resulted in chronic back pain for me, uh different kinds of health issues where I, if I try something, um, I go, this is pretty good and I can do this job or I can do this study, whatever that, like I tried to um, do a conventional agricultural science degree a few times. This got so sad, like um, so sad, I couldn't stop crying. <laughs> Just based on the curriculum they were trying to teach us, which, is, which was centred around economic growth over regenerative um, plant and soil health. Um, uh, so that was just really hard. So I think for me, um, I feel everything in this world, all the highs and all the lows in my personal world. And so I think that was something I just, once you learn things and once you're exposed to things, I can't, haven't been able to ignore them. That's both fantastic and really challenging because it's not an easy path. Uh, the write about my book, How Good Life Isn't Necessarily an Easy Life, but it's a very rich one. And that, that's the life I choose. Yeah. So how did you first find your way into permaculture and then kind of appearing on television for the fans of Gardening Australia? How, was that just a kind of natural evolution? Well, I, I can't remember when I first heard about permaculture because my dad being in such so involved in the plant community is kind of that word was just around. I think we must have had a few books on our bookshelves around it. But I didn't really learn about it until um, I happened to meet the wonderful Anne-Marie and Graham Brookman who run the food forest in South Australia. And they their farm is one of the most successful commercial permaculture farms in the world, definitely in Australia, but also beyond that. And they uh, really embody permaculture um, and taught me that it's not just about organic gardening or farming. It is a way of life. Um, permaculture at its heart is a design framework that you can, be, can be applied to anything from building design, economics, governance, culture and education and more. And anne and Graham showed me that and I was like, oh, this is amazing because <laughs> I just thought it was some organic gardening thing that you did and that's cool. Um, and around that time I was very deeply involved in activism um, and mostly around forest activism in Luchuwata, Tasmania. And it took me a few years of doing that, which I find such invaluable activism to this day. We need people at those front lines of um, forestry and every kind of environmental and justice campaign. Um, so I think, but for me, I just kept getting burnt out, kept getting really tired and go, oh, why, how am I meant to keep doing this forever? <laughs> and around that time I re-explored permaculture when actually I can adopt this as my activist framework. I think it will nourish me and nourish others in the process. 
And that was a really, that was a clear pivot for me. That was a clear turning point when I went, oh, okay, activism is for everybody. You just have to find what fits you and your skill set, your personality, your, your passion. Find that and then you can keep going forever. And how awesome is that? It's so exciting because I think activism is, is a dirty word in our culture. Um, it's like, oh, no, I don't, I'm not an activist. Like, why not? Like, activism is for everybody. It's a beautiful way of life that shows you care deeply. And I reckon everyone cares deeply and we're just learning how to express that and defend that of what we care for. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that the the thing that people recoil against in activism is the judgment, is the Mm. shaming, is the hardline, dogmatic, holier-than-thou stuff. And, you know, um, you talk about how you used to be much more dogmatic, but yeah. You don't identify yourself that way anymore. No, nothing is, um, I can't, you can't, there's, not, there's so much gray in our world. And I think we have to embrace that. It's hard to be black and white. You can't, you can't just go, yes, you're right. I'm wrong. You're bad. I'm good. Uh, we isolate ourselves very quickly and we turn people against ourselves very quickly. That was my experience as a younger activist when I was like um, very vocal about what I believed and who I thought was right and wrong. <laughs> um, and somewhere in there, I learned that. Uh, most of us are really just trying to do our best and we are inherently good humans finding our way and how can we make sure that we don't um, just cancel each other out. I'm really not a fan of cancel culture. I think it's highly problematic. Uh, and I think that instead of um, just ruling each other out for whatever reasons, like, okay, let's listen to each other, let's have some dialogue Absolutely, we people need to be held accountable. Absolutely, it's not about just giving people free passes. But it's help about how we have more constructive conversations that actually change hearts and minds, rather than making people scared to speak up or to um, properly acknowledge where they may have not done a good thing or said a good thing. Like I think it's a really interesting time we live in, where with media, online, social media. Anybody can say anything to anyone um, with huge ramifications and how do we have that, how do we use that for good and not for, for, um, in a way that can damage whole movements? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting because you straddle these different worlds of activism and changing systems and also gardening and growing plants and learning how to be part of nature and that that thing that you say about permaculture, that my favorite approach to permaculture is one that helps people remember we're not here to manage nature. Mm. We are nature. Mm. And so I feel like you're literally grounding this conversation that can be very intellectual and very pure and black Mm. and white in some circles. And you're actually bringing it into the earth and into our homes and into our towns and kind of showing people like, you can care about all these things. And it's not a competition for purity, mm. but there's a way that you can nourish yourself and nourish the earth. And you just make it so accessible. Like you give people a starting point who care about the world and you give people who maybe want to grow a vegetable a way of kind of <laughs> connecting that and to the bigger systems or the bigger things that they can be part of. Is that something that you've had to really harness intentionally or was it just natural for you? Oh, look, definitely. I do seem to have a natural um, ability to demystify things. People have said that to me a lot over the years, which is great. Um, I think it's a direct reflection of me trying to make sense of the world. And in our culture, we very much value academia and we intellectualize everything. Um, And a lot of people like myself included 
can't make it's not a natural way of communicating and, and it makes you feel left out or, or you assume that you don't belong in that conversation and I've had to really step up and go actually when it comes to the climate emergency this is everyone's conversation um, for many years I've sat back and go I'm too intimidated <laughs> to participate in this conversation I don't understand everything they're talking about or that language they're using isn't familiar to me I think we do ourselves a huge disservice when we when we um, prioritise that way of communicating. Most of us don't relate to that. Um, and so I think I've really, um, even writing this book was a, um, scary for me. I'm like, oh, gosh, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this stuff. Um, I'm not a professional climate scientist. <laughs> um, so that's a... But I, I really had to break through that and go, no, no more time for that. It's, it's everyone, everyone needs to be at this table and we need as many voices as we, as we can and we need to elevate them um, and make this everyone's conversation and not just the people in current authority positions because that's not working, hasn't worked for decades now. Um, it's, we need to start joining in in any capacity we can. So talk to us about your voice and finding your voice because you found it in a few forums now. Like you found it online and, and through social media and YouTube videos, you found it in Gardening Australia and now you found it in this book. Like how did these things come to be? Yeah, look, um, Gardening Australia is a dream come true. Like um, I just still pinch myself to this day. <laughs> so I'm a longtime fan. And and I remember watching them when I was a teenager with Peter Cundall back in the day as the lead presenter and host. Um and just really going, these are the only people in mainstream media talking about things which are a little bit different and really, really important um, that I could see at, my, at that point in my life. And so I've, I've really admired them for decades. And I was really fortunate to be invited on the show as a one-off um, guest just to explore my uh, house and home here. And then after that, they invited me back, um, which is so lovely. And they just keep inviting me back. <laughs> So touch wood, they just keep asking because they're wonderful to work with, um, just so committed and so passionate. I think no matter what your interest is, when you find your people, it's just the most beautiful gift and, and the Gardening Australia community is definitely my people. <laughs> um, so that's been incredibly fortunate. And with the book, that was another uh, really incredible um, stroke of good fortune where at the beginning of COVID in 2020, uh, we were being really slammed with people going, Hannah, I'm really scared. There's no fresh food in the shops. Can you teach me how to garden? Um, but we're not allowed to gather. So how do I teach you? <laughs> so I, I launched um, a series of online videos around gardening in crisis. Um, and they went really, they got really popular. And one of the people who saw them works with a publishing company called Affirm Press in Melbourne, in NAM. And they, they contacted me and said, oh, can you please write a book basically about what you're doing? I said, oh, thanks so much for asking, but no thanks, I'm not a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> um, and they just very politely persisted, which I'm so grateful for. And the conversation that ended up um, just pushing me over the edge in a good way was that actually, Hannah, when it comes to climate emergency and the way of living, which is a bit more connected to the world, uh, the conversations we need to have it needed to be diversified and your voice is a good could be a good part of that and I th I think I'm like yeah absolutely we need to value our own stories rather than assuming that the super uninteresting not going to matter no one wants to listen <laughs> which is my internal story <laughs> um, and go actually let's have a crack here 
uh, as someone who's been self-employed for most of their life, it's so rare that people present opportunities to you like this. Um, Gardening Australia and writing this book are the two such golden opportunities. I'm like, wow, that is so amazing. Um, so I had to really reflect and go, actually, I'm going to jump at this and and give it my all and hope that I can um, create something that resonates with people. Yeah. Oh, man. And thank goodness you did. Thank goodness I wouldn't take no for an answer because <laughs> you have succeeded. Um, this, I just, I'm so sorry, listeners. I am going to gush for this entire episode. It is going to be annoying. But when you see the book, when you read the book, get the book now, you are just going to absolutely love it and understand why. So talk to us more about what the sort of central topic of this book, the central question that it's answering is what does it mean to live the good life in the face of the climate emergency? Yeah. What is that? It's such a huge question. And, and, and I know you can't do it all right here, right now in a one hour conversation, but what do you think the core things are for you? So a key thing I really write about quite a lot in the book is about finding and articulating your values and how that's actually quite a radical act because in our culture we don't really encourage people to do that. We say, uh, here is our world, join in and just carry on perpetuating the system that we've created for you. We don't really uh, encourage people to do deep reflection about what's important to them, what they uh, hold dear in this world. We just go, here is the world, go for it. <laughs> so I think um, I actually, you know, the part of this book is also described as a workbook where we go, where we ask questions of the reader, what, what are your values? Have a crack at articulating them. How do they make you feel and how might they help shape your life in a practical sense? So that's a really big thing I have centred the book around because I think that when it comes to our world, the climate emergency, all these huge challenges, when we think about what we value, we'd have huge commonalities across all cultures, all backgrounds. Um, I don't think there'd be a lot of difference there. I think there's more unity than difference, which I think is a good thing to remember. Uh, so I think that's a big thing that we hold on to around how to live a good life in the face of the climate emergency. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. Like, it is. Here's the world. Join it. Um, mm. And and I love too how when people kind of come at you with, um, I guess the first excuse, you know, off the top of the head, which is, oh, I'd love to do what you do, but you know, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the privilege. And your answer to them is so beautiful. It's like if you want to live how I live, figure out your values and live by them. Yeah. And it I'll doesn't have you. to be public. It doesn't have to be no. something that you blog about or make YouTube mm. videos about. No. Yeah. So I happen to have um, the benefit of pretty good health. I can, I've got some good support in my, my immediate family and community. So I can do lots of stuff and I'm just going to, I'm going to exploit myself as much as I can to do as much as I can. So that's my particular circumstance, but I've got friends, really dear friends and family who can't for whatever really valid reasons can't do those things. And I don't think we should all have to, I think finding our values and voting for climate safe policies if they used to do those two things, I'm happy. Hey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love that you have a mission statement for your home because this is not something that I had ever thought about before. Like bringing that level of consciousness and intentionality to actually, which I know can sound a bit, you know, but like you don't put things that way because that's not who you are. And just, do you want to read out your mission statement? Will that make yeah. you blush? Okay. No, that's good. I can have a crack. <laughs> yes, please. All right. All right. So, our home is bloody beautiful. 
There's colour, creativity and food all over the place. And while, while it may not be perfectly neat, it oozes life and love. Every now and then we open it up to the world to share our experiences and encourage others to get into it. I love it. And you talk about how this, like creating a statement like this, it should just make your heart want to do happy dances, right? Like it's just yeah. really bringing it into the level of how do we live and how do, what do we want our home to be about? Yeah, I think it's great. So my partner, Anton, and I created that together. And it's a really nice exercise to do with the people that you live with um, because it brings you to the same page. It's like, oh, what are we creating here? Whether that's a garden or, you know, just like a way of life, anything in between those two things, it's a really nice thing to set the intention and go, how do we want to live in the world? And that's been really powerful for me in every facet of my life, that's work or personal in my gardens. Like what am I actually trying to do here rather than just fumbling around passing time? Um, and that's been really powerful to actually create good stuff in real time, like working towards stuff. And so that when people ask me, how do you do all the things you do? I'm like, oh, I set pretty clear intentions. <laughs> I spend a lot of time thinking about why I'm doing things rather than just what I'm doing. Like, where do I want to be? How can I be more impactful? Um, how do I get there? Yeah. Hey everybody, just a quick interjection to say if you're enjoying this conversation and want more, head to australiaremade.org. You can check out some of our written content, you can subscribe for email updates, you can also follow us along on social media. The other thing I'll ask you to do is subscribe to follow the podcast and make sure that you don't miss a conversation. The second nicest thing that you can do for the podcast is spread the word. We are putting this out there through word of mouth rather than a big corporate advertising budget. So we are really relying on people to help get these conversations about solutions and remaking the world that we want into the ears of all of the amazing leaders and people out there just like you. Thanks so much. Back to the show. so much um, authenticity and transparency like the way that you write this book and you break down like this is the you know we were looking for a home we kind of had a small budget we had to look for these things this is how we've done it this is how we've made it work like you really you let people peer behind the curtain of um, this is who we are in a way that doesn't feel voyeuristic social media kind of like hunting but just just honest, just like we're not superhuman and we don't have anything that no one else has. And, you know, this, this kind of life wasn't handed to us on the platter. In fact, you talk about how the good life is a hard life in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so we, my partner, Anton and I worked very hard and we did things like we bought a property, which was, um, we still, we have a mortgage, but it's considered cheap for our area. Um, but we bought it so if we had to, we could pay off the mortgage with one part-time income. Um, we happened to both work full-time very, very hard <laughs> because we want to, but we know we have the option, although we don't have to be so crippled by debt, we can go, yet yeah, we can still have freedom here, which allows us to both run our own businesses and be really flexible and creative with how we do things. So that's really, really important. Um, yeah, so nothing's been handed to us, but we do come from privilege. Like we do... Like we haven't inherited money at all, but we come from a supportive families network. Um, we're both white, we're both educated. So 
yeah, we haven't had anything handed to us, but we benefit from the system that we're born into. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you um, you have a little girl as well, your daughter, yeah. who appears in the book and um, and in some of the videos and other sort of media stuff that you've done. What does she think about her good life? Like, what does she like? Cause how old is she? Six, isn't she? Yeah, Frida Maria is now six, um, and she's a fierce firecracker. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to keep up with. She's great. So to her, you know, it's it's the normal way of life. But when I showed her the book. Something something happened to her where she was really proud, um, which was beautiful to see that she could. She's like, "Oh, the way we live is really um, to be celebrated, Mama, isn't it?" And like, "Yeah, like it's really cool," and because this is all she's ever known. Um, and I think that was it's really good for her to see that people are celebrating this way of life and that there's inherent goodness around it that's worth talking about and worth sharing. Um, so that's really nice to see, um, I guess, that realisation in her. Yeah. So talk to us more for people who um, haven't read the book yet or aren't super familiar with you. How how do you live? What What is, paint us a picture of your house and your animals and, and kind of yeah. the community. How have you set up this good life? Sure. So we live in central Nipaluna in Hobart. Um, our property is just under 3,000 square metres, which is a very large urban block, um, and it's very steep. Uh, we overlook Nipaluna and the ocean here, and we're drenched in sunshine, which is important in cool, temperate Luchuita, Tasmania. <laughs> um, and because it's so steep, we've terraced it uh, so we can walk along the slope easily and we can grow food very easily. Uh, and the house that we have here is it's quite an old timber house which we slowly retrofitting and we painted it hot pink because it makes us happy <laughs> so anywhere when you're in town you can look up because uh, we're on a high hill and you can see our house it's kind of like blowing <laughs> which is lovely um yeah people often visit if they follow me on social media like oh well, we saw your house from the city house <laughs> so exciting <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah we have lots of animals here so I have two milking goats uh, who I milk every morning they're gorgeous and lots of chickens honeybees and some ducks and one rabbit which is um, my daughter's pet um, so there's it's a really active landscape highly productive uh, is, is how we treat our landscape we make it really regenerative but we really make sure we can get as much as we can from it as well as giving lots back to it as well um, and we also feature lots of natives in here for beautiful birds and bees and all the good habitat things as well yeah and you've always got people kind of it seems like people are always buzzing around coming and going you have a spare room in your house where people can stay in exchange for kind of helping out or where you can earn a bit of extra cash if you want to rent it out yeah like COVID's definitely put a dampener on that yeah true <laughs> So um, currently we don't have people staying here. Uh, we're doing renovations in our house. So we're, we're, we're just kind of pulling it apart and putting it back together to be more efficient and comfortable. Uh, but, yeah, usually we have people living in a, what we call the bonus little house and, that, and it's usually um, some friends who just live there. But sometimes we'll have people coming and going as well, which is gorgeous. And that's a really um, conscious decision that we made because we love our own space and we love our little family unit. But we recognise that that nuclear family isn't necessarily a healthy framework to base your whole life on. And just by having people, other people live on the property, it helps us puncture that and just mix things up a little bit. And, you know, it's nothing special. It just means that you have more conversations in your day, which you wouldn't otherwise have, and you have more relationships. It's like a nice 
mini community safety net that you can create where it's just challenging how that that nuclear family which Mm. it's not it's too much pressure yeah too hard (laughs) my goodness especially in lockdown when as much as you love them they are the only people you have seen or spoken to in person for an art you know I'm in Sydney and it's just months Mm. now where you're like yes I would love a friend I would love someone else to have a chat to or a cup of tea yeah I think the more diversity in our lives in every facet whether it's in the garden or with our community the better you know so I think that's something I I you know I am a very big introvert which most people don't I was uh, going to ask about you me. about that yeah <laughs> yeah because do people say to you community. it's so interesting isn't it because you talk about community a lot in the book and clearly you value it hugely mm. and yet like is Anton introverted as well how do you guys make that work yeah, he's he's less introverted than me, uh, but I think it's important. Like, not everybody wants to be out all the time and can find that really draining. I think how do how do introverts exist in this picture as well? Because often activism um, is centered around really extroverted activities, <laughs> hugely confronting for a lot of us. It's very confronting for me, but I, I but but I am teaching myself because I, I find. There's more value in engaging people in these conversations than not trying. So I, I am teaching myself and forcing myself to learn those skills. But my natural state is a happy introvert. I just love it. It was I just my idea of a good time is going away by myself into the bush, ideally for a whole week. With I don't want to see anybody. You sound <laughs> like my husband. <laughs> I went for a walk the other day um, in our local bushland and I was I got back and I was really disgruntled and, and Tom's like, what's wrong, Hannah? I was like, there are people everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, I, I, emphasize, I mentioned introverts a few times in my book because acknowledging that often uh, activism is centred around extroverted activities. It's like, actually, no, no, that doesn't have to be that way. There's a space for everybody here. Uh, uh, activists can be introverted people as well. You don't have to, um, you know, march in the street, talk to politicians. You can do these, you can have good impact with doing different things like moving your money into fossil fuel-free investments and super funds. So there's, that's so powerful. And I've already said it before, but I'll say it 10 more times, vote for climate-safe policies. <laughs> yeah, and so these things are so powerful and it comes from the individual action, yeah. Yeah, look, you're so good at connecting the individual to the collective and to the systemic because there has been a real strategy to individualize mm. every problem yeah. in modern life. And and the climate emergency is no exception. You know, that the fossil fuel industry invented the idea of the carbon footprint, yeah. which all of us good yeah. activists picked up and ran with and went, oh, oh yeah. okay, it's clearly my fault. So how do I minimize and how do I shrink my mm. carbon footprint? Yeah. And I think that you have this way of of showing people that it's a both and situation that yes we can do things more than we ever imagined we really could do in our daily lives if we want to but that it's not our fault and that it really is no. about the bigger picture change. Yeah, I think we do ourselves a disservice uh, where we often cut each other down for not doing enough, not enough recycling, too much plastic, you know, not good enough. I'm like it's not our fault. This is we're, the situation we're in is not our fault, and we have to remember. You mentioned the concept of the carbon footprint was invented by BP by their marketing company. Spent over two hundred and fifty million dollars in in creating that concept, and we latched onto it. Us, all our school activists, like we're all we're all about it. And 
we are keeping ourselves small. We're going, yeah, we've just got to work out how to get plastic out of my household. I'm like, cool, do that. But really hold these big businesses accountable. These industries are taking us for a big ride. They don't deserve our support, not at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the many things I have underlined in your book is a, it's a fact that I only heard one other place. I've spent my career in you know, campaigning, climate communications. You and one other place, I have heard this quote that it is unfortunate to put it mildly that 70% of greenhouse gases are emitted by just 100 companies globally. Yeah. 70% yeah, since the dawn of the industrial age yeah. have been admitted by 100 companies. Yeah. And I think we have to remember that. We have to keep talking about it because as we're saying, this has been individualized as problems. Like, yeah, just got to drive less, you know, walk more, plant some food. I'm like, cool, do those things. Absolutely. They'll bring you in beautiful joy and good health and vote the bastards out. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse my language. <laughs> I no, think, you know, people it. say to me, Hannah, you seem really angry about this. I'm like, you bet I'm angry about this. These people are not good people. And um, I, that's, that takes a lot for me to say that, but they're actively, mindfully doing these, um, perpetuating a system for their short-term gain uh, at the, and, and, and we are all just copying it. Um, and I think the sooner that we remember that, uh, we there's there's millions of us, billions of us who are in the same boat, um, and we come together and use our uh, individual power to collectivize it and to really um, center our values to create the world that we want. Which I think would be it's it's not an easy job, but I think there's a lot of commonality there that can bring us together to create that. Mm. So. If someone is listening to this and their curiosity is piqued and they think, okay, I'm going to go check out the book, but gosh, I don't know. I mean, like in my case, for instance, you know, we rent, we live in the outer mm. suburbs of a very expensive <laughs> city. Um, it's been really easy to have excuses for yeah. not knowing where to start. And gosh, I tried composting and it just turned into a mess. And by the way, your book totally clarifies and your videos, everything <laughs> that we've been doing wrong with composting. I'm like, oh, that's why. Um, but like, what would you advise people beyond, you know, like getting clear on their values? And then it, are there just some easy places to start to think about how they might bridge the gap between the values that they have on the inside and the way that they're able to live those values on the outside? Yeah, and I think... That'll be really contextualized depending if you're renting, owning, um, you know, what your personal interests and passions are. I, I don't think you should do anything that you don't really want to do. So I don't think everyone should grow their food if they're just really genuinely uninterested in doing that. <laughs> but I do think we all should think about where our food comes from and uh, using the hard earned money that you've got, supporting uh, Australian local growers and producers to source some or all of your food. Uh, as much as possible. So as much as you can use your money to support good things to keep happening in our country and the world, the better. Um, part of that's around relocalising, but not always. And I think I think that's not everyone's got the option to do that. And I think that's a conversation um, mostly centred around privilege and access. Um, but I do think if we think about all the things that we have to do like with our money, with our time, how we move, transport ourselves around the city or the country, what are the options there to do that in a really creative way, which could be really straightforward, like car sharing, um, different types of things, which, again, come down to individual actions, but 
they can still be very powerful. And we keep voting for climate safe policies. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, people go, oh, what are the top three things we should do? I'm like, move your money out of fossil fuels, vote um, responsibly for climate safe policies and centre First Nations voices in the climate emergency conversation. Um, The more we can listen and learn from First Nations communities across Australia, the more we can understand that historic uh, tragedy and which is still happening to this day and let that inform us how we move forward in this time. Uh, I think as soon as we start centering voices that aren't the white privileged people, things can be different. Um, and when we're in Australia, that means centering uh, frontline communities and First Nations communities who are hit hardest by the climate emergency. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to add to that, if I may be so bold, in terms of we have an election coming up and there will be people listening to this conversation and all around the country who think, I care about climate change, but I can't bring myself to, you know, just vote on that one issue if I don't like the way X party is on all these other things. And, you know, we talk about this issue a lot on the show. We talk about democracy. We talk about the influence of money in politics and the fossil fuel lobby. And so there's all these little puzzle pieces. Um, And what I would say is, you know, one of our guests, um, Dr. Amanda Cowell, talked about how she still has MPs who say to her privately, I know climate change is important to people because I've seen the polls, but I've never had an individual private note from a constituent about it. I've seen stuff from activist groups, but I've never just had a personal contact about it from somebody. So it's like, wow, we're not even using... This, this sort of easy tools that we have at our disposal to write to that MP that you want to vote for. And if their party isn't great on climate change, say, but I actually need you to do better on this massively. If it's not climate safe, what are we doing? Hmm. It's so interesting. And I, I wonder about that too. Uh, we happen to have a, quite a progressive uh, representative here in our electorate. So I write to him, but mostly I'm like, can you just keep doing what you're doing? <laughs> Because, Which is another great thing to do yeah. because how often do politicians actually get thanked That's and acknowledged point, really. for doing good stuff? That's a great point, yeah. Um, but I, I do wonder about what is, I don't know if it's apathy or just not understanding the avenues available to Australians that they can reach out to their local representative um, to write or talk to them at any time. I, I just I, It's a question I have, like what what is that? And I think part of it's culturally we've lost a lot of trust in our politics and I have um, in, the, in the you know past 20 something years that I've been paying attention that it's like well the feeling is what's the point anyway they're going to do whatever they want you know that's that's the that's the thought that comes to me and I and, I, and I'm really active in this space but I'm just like oh geez it's, it's really hard to stay engaged because they're just doing whatever they want. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, yeah. that cynicism only hurts us because yeah. it's so understandable why people feel that way. Mm. And yet when we pull out, we vacate the space completely for yeah. the vested interests and the others to be the only voice in the room. Mm. And as a young activist, I totally acknowledge I um, dropped out of that that kind of broader mainstream conversation because I was like what's the point anyway I'm just going to go create my own cool thing over here and I'm madly trying to catch up like no we don't need we need people to be right there in the middle like we need people in politics you know in in every time in every business in every area of our world we need people really engaged and not um, giving up uh, because that's why um, this is all happening people just like oh okay this is this is what happens now we just go along for the ride I think it's just like actually no, it's not 
it's not okay to do this with our world without us stepping in and guiding how we want the world to be. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you'll be able to reach people through um, a love of gardening and a shared love of nature yeah. and, you know, that, that might not want to listen to another voice, you know, that yeah. might not identify with a different kind of activism. And that's something I've reflected on a lot as well. My personal life, I, came, like I happen to be really love farming and gardening. I've spent most of my life doing that. Um, so I'm like, how can I use this as my in to talk about the things that I think are really important to be talked about? I think I encourage people to, to reflect on their own life and their own passions and skills and, like, how can you use those as your in to talk about the things that are really important for the world? So I think when there's everybody's got an in. you just got to find it and articulate language around it. I don't think people um, will say, oh, I can't do this because I'm an accountant or I'm a, I'm a school teacher. I'm like, cool, use that venue, just avenue, just go for it. <laughs> just, if those are your people, those are the people that will be far more likely to want to have a conversation with you. My friend, a, a good friend of mine, her dad, um, you know, is a very successful ex-businessman. I mean, until he kind of retired. And in the very latter years of his life, um, liberal voting, eastern suburbs of Sydney, all the, you know, all the kind of t- privilege boxes ticked. And he became passionate about sustainability. And so he puts on his suit and he goes and he talks to those other largely old white rich men who would not necessarily, you know, and they don't feel lectured and they don't feel judged and they don't feel attacked. It's like, oh, this is someone who speaks my language and I can Mm. understand where they're coming from. And he's had a huge influence. Um, Yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. Mm. Yeah. That find your people advice. Um, So when you think about the future and your own work and your own hopes and dreams and plans, is there anything kind of over the horizon that you're looking forward to? Yeah, look, this is a really interesting question for me. For the first time in my adult life, I haven't got like a five-year plan mapped out. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a natural planner. and But um, at the beginning of this year, I, I consciously went, no, I'm just going to stop that for a while. And I've got so much work already kind of lined up and the book was coming out this year. And I was like, let's just leave some space to see what happens. And it's been very challenging, but my intention with that is to make space to go deeper and deeper into how to be an activist in my work and life. Um, and I, and it's a little bit, um, I'm a little bit unsure what that looks like, but I think I was just talking to a friend yesterday and it just made the point, you just got to keep going. You've just got to um, put out all your work that you're doing and you've got to keep following through with it. So I do have some, I do have, saying all that, I do have quite a lot of projects in the pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my hope is that, um, I can move more and more into that broader conversation of, I guess, you know, participate. It's like there's hundreds and thousands of of us doing this, including yourself, Lily. It's like how do we change consciousness here? How do we change hearts and minds into really good, meaningful action? Like I I think that's um, that's, I've always done that, but like how do I do more of that and get better at that and deepen that? So that's the space that I'm very committed to being in and, I use all the work that I do with my, I do lots of landscape design work and um, we have a pool of teachers rolling out great workshops for people around in, in Lichwater, Tasmania. But all of that work subsidises me, just basically volunteering my time <laughs> just to just crack on and do as much as I can. Um, so that's an interesting thing. It's like how do we make this more, um, how do we make activism more uh, supported financially and energetically with my time as well? 
that's an ongoing conversation I'm exploring, which is a bit of a rambling answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, like, and, you know, I was reflecting on the question because I think in, in some ways our culture is so geared toward, you know, bigger, better, more, next, yeah. what's on the future. And I love how you talk about that we're not just here to, you know, run at a million miles an hour, exhaust ourselves and do everything that we can, that actually it's that integration of paying attention to the internal landscape as well and getting aligned in kind of our beingness. And so I almost want to say to someone who is, you know, an amazing leader like yourself, like you don't have to do another damn thing if you don't want to. (laughs) And you are absolutely valid and valuable and loved and worthy just as you are. And thank you. Like, thank you for everything that you have put out into the world. Thank you. can have fun with the goats and, and, you know, enjoy the next season of life and, 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 you know, that I think we get so caught up in this kind of, and it is a sort of in form of almost internalized capitalism, this productivity hamster yeah. wheel yeah. mindset. I've totally got, got a lot of internalized capitalism in me and, and centered around, I'm only valuable if I'm working my guts out. Um, and you are, you are worth what you do or what you produce. So I, I have, it's a constant unraveling for me to get rid of that because, um, we are so much more than that. And we, and we don't have to strive to be the best we can be because we're already there, like we're already being. And I, it's, I'm not the best person to articulate those concepts, but there's feelings really deep in me that, um, like we are all, we are everything that we are already meant to be. We just have to allow that to happen. And that's something I, I do touch on a little bit in the book because um, we do ourselves, give ourselves such a hard time around this. It's like, oh, we're never good enough not doing enough, you know, it's like, oh gosh, you know, when, when are we going to let up about this stuff? It's awful. <laughs> yeah. It's not a nice way to be. And I think it causes a lot of people to just want to unplug completely. Yeah. Um, we compare ourselves to each other all the time. It's awful. And really, you know, all, all we want to say with a question like what's next on your dream horizon is simply thank you. We see you. We love it. And we want to follow and support, you know, oh. like it's just, it really is a pleasure to, to be able to, to find you and, and more of your work. So we're going to be directing people with show notes to, you know, the website and the book and the things that you're doing so that they can continue to follow you. But before we um, completely wrap up for today, I did want to take a minute to ask you some silly rapid fire <laughs> questions your answer can be serious it can be silly it can be big or little what's something making life better for you right now Hannah Maloney oh um well look right this very minute Ugg boots because I'm wearing Ugg boots (laughs) and so my toes are really cold but now they're not really cold um but yeah for me I think it's my daughter and her ferocious questioning of everything I do and everything I say. Um, she makes me think deeply about stuff. Yeah. They're good at that, aren't they? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, is there something you've changed your mind about recently? Oh. Well, this is a, this is something, again, as a work in progress, but I was thinking about this morning, is um, I'm changing my mind about myself being clever enough to have a crack at having some big conversations publicly and being okay with learning in public which is a concept I learned through a feminist podcast which is 
it kind of draws out how um, when women fail, fail in inverted comments, um, comments in um, in public, when we fail in public, we're we're kind of cancelled and like oh and discredited. But when men fail in public, it's often just oh well, no worries, and you just carry on. We see it in politics all the time. Um, so something I'm changing my mind about me is that I'm 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 okay. I'm really clever, and it's okay to be uncomfortable with learning in public and to be gracious around that. Yeah, that, it's that's big. It's yes, really, big. really hard. It's really hard. It takes a lot of courage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what's something people get wrong about you? Oh, we mentioned it before, but they think I'm an extrovert. Like just because people like have pink houses and pink hairs. <laughs> But um, no, uh, that's the main thing. Oh, and everybody, when they meet me for the first time, they go, oh, you're so much taller than I would have expected. I'm really tall. I'm six foot one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And finally, for anyone who's maybe just listening to this in the car or on a walk or something, where can they find more of you? Where can they go to find more of your work? Yeah, so our website, goodlifepermaculture.com.au, and we're on social media, um, on YouTube with some really very daggy homemade videos, which are good fun. <laughs> So we're, we're out and about everywhere and, that, and the book is in all your good local bookstores book or online at Booktopia. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Hannah, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your book. Um, everybody, The Good Life, How to Grow a Better World by Hannah Maloney. It is out now. It is selling like hotcakes and for good reason. This book is just a warm hug. It is like this invitation into the good life with with your head and your heart and your hands and bringing all those three together. And Hannah, thank you for being such a beautiful leader that models that to all of us. It's been such a delight to get to talk to you. Thanks, Lily. And thanks to you and Australia Remade for being doing incredible work in this area as well. on that conversation and all of the many notes that I took, one of the first things that sticks out to me is how I keep interviewing um, closet introverts. <laughs> Don't assume that just because someone is a hit on social media or lives in a pink house with pink hair means that they are super extroverted. But I've heard a version of this um, several times from guests that like, actually I'm really quite shy and even doing a conversation like this, I really have to gear myself up for. Uh, which I find incredibly endearing. And Hannah is obviously incredibly endearing and wise and lovely. And I think that the model that she is showing us of this kind of brave, um, human sort of, I'm not going to armor up to put myself out there. I might not have all the answers, but I'm going to offer my piece of the puzzle is just really beautiful. So Living the good life, the main lesson that I took from that was really that it is about finding and articulating your own values, that we don't just have to accept the world that everyone else has left for us and try to find our little place in it, Um, that it's really quite radical to sort of think, well, what are the things that I'm going to choose to live by? And those actions don't have to be public. It probably won't be glamorous. You know, the poster child of permaculture says we don't even have to grow our own food, but we might want to think about where our food comes from or what else our money is supporting. So to recap her bigger picture things, that shopping list includes vote for climate safe policies, get your money out of fossil fuels, 
center First Nations and frontline voices wherever we can. And one for me, talk to your politicians. Whether that is to cajole or acknowledge or thank, we have an election coming up. We can be vocal, we can reach out, and we can make our voices heard. Thank you to all of you for listening and sharing. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please follow so that you can listen to future ones. And if you want to talk to us, our email address is podcast at australiaremade.org. Thanks, everyone. been the remakers a podcast by australia remade we celebrate aboriginal and torres strait islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be australian that is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth i record this podcast from dara country which is just north of sydney i want to pay my deepest respects to elders past present and emerging on this land I also want to thank my collaborator-in-chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson, and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.